Chapter 7 of The Spirit of the Age, or Contemporary Portraits, by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rolf Robele. Chapter 7, Lord Byron. Lord Byron and Sir Walter Scott are among writers now living note this essay was written just before byron's death end of note the two who would carry away a majority of suffrages as the greatest geniuses of the age the former would perhaps obtain the preference with the fine gentlemen and ladies squeamishness apart the latter with the critics and the vulgar we shall treat of them in the same connection partly on account of their distinguished preeminence, and partly because they afford a complete contrast to each other, in their poetry, in their prose, in their politics, and in their tempers, no two men can be more unlike. If Sir Walter Scott may be thought by some to have been born universal heir to all humanity, it is plain Lord Byron can set up no such pretension. He is, in a striking degree, the creature of his own will he holds no communion with his kind but stands alone without mate or fellow as if man were author of himself and own no other kin he is like a solitary peak all access to which is cut off not more by elevation than distance he is seated on a lofty eminence cloud-capped or reflecting the last rays of setting suns and in his poetical moods reminds us of the fabled titans retired to a ridgy steep playing on their pan's pipes and taking up ordinary men and things in their hands with haughty indifference he raises his subject to himself or tramples on it he neither stoops to nor loses himself in it he exists not by sympathy but by antipathy he scorns all things, even himself. Nature must come to him to sit for her picture. He does not go to her. She must consult his time, his convenience, and his humor. And wear a somber or a fantastic garb, or his lordship turns his back upon her. There is no ease, no unaffected simplicity of manner, no golden mean all is strained or petulant in the extreme his thoughts are sphered and crystalline his style prouder than when blue iris bends his spirit fiery impatient wavered indefatigable instead of taking his impressions from without in entire and almost unimpaired masses he moulds them according to his own temperament and heats the materials of his imagination in the furnace of his passions lord byron's verse glows like a flame consuming everything in its way sir walter scott's glides like a river clear gentle harmless the poetry of the first scorches that of the last scarcely warms the light of the one proceeds from an internal source ensanguined sullen fixed the other reflects the hues of heaven or the face of nature glancing vivid and various the production of the northern bard have the rust and the freshness of antiquity about them those of the noble poet cease to startle from their extreme ambition of novelty both in style and manner 
Sir Walter's rhymes are silly sooth and dally with the innocence of thought, like the old age. His lordship's muse spurns the olden time and affects all the supercilious airs of a modern fine lady and an upstart. The object of the one writer is to restore us to truth and nature. The other chiefly thinks of how he shall display his own power, or vent his spleen, or astonish the reader either by starting new subjects and trains of speculation, or by expressing old ones in a more striking and emphatic manner than they have been expressed before. He cares little what it is he says, so that he can say differently from others. This may account for the charges of plagiarism, which have been repeatedly brought against the noble poet. If he can borrow an image or a sentiment from another, and heighten it by an epithet or an illusion of greater force and beauty than is to be found in the original passage, he thinks he shows his superiority of execution in this in a more marked manner than if the first suggestion had been his own. It is not the value of the observation itself he is solicitous about, but he wishes to shine by contrast. Even nature only serves as a foil to set off his style. He therefore takes the thoughts of others, whether contemporaries or not, out of their mouths, and is content to make them his own, to set his stamp upon them, by imparting them to a more meretricious gloss, a higher relief, a greater loftiness of tone, and a characteristic inveteracy of purpose. Even in those collateral ornaments of modern style, slovenliness, abruptness, and eccentricity, as well as in terseness and significance, Lord Byron, when he pleases, defies competition and surpasses all his contemporaries. Whatever he does, he must do it in a more decided and daring manner than any one else. He lounges with extravagance and yawns so as to alarm the reader. Self-will, passion, the love of singularity, a disdain of himself and of others, with the conscious sense that this is among the ways and means of procuring admiration, are the proper categories of his mind. He is a lordly writer, is above his own reputation, and condescends to the muses with a scornful grace. Lord Byron, who in his politics is a liberal, in his genius is haughty and aristocratic, Walter Scott, who is an aristocrat in principle, is popular in his writings and is, as it were, equally servile to nature and to opinion. The genius of Sir Walter is essentially imitative, or denotes a foregone conclusion. That of Lord Byron is self-dependent, or at least requires no aid, is governed by no law, but the impulses of his own will. We confess, however much we may admire independence of feeling and erectness of spirit in general or practical questions, yet in works of genius we prefer him who bows to the authority of nature, who appeals to actual objects, to mouldering superstitions, to history, to observation and tradition, before him who only consults the pragmatical and restless workings of his own breast and gives them out as oracles to the world. We like a writer, whether poet or prose writer, who takes in, or is willing to take in, the range of half the universe in feeling, character, description, much better than we do one who obstinately and invariably shuts himself up in the Bastille of his own ruling passions. In short, we'd rather be Sir Walter Scott, meaning thereby the author of Waverley, 
than Lord Byron a hundred times over, and for the reason just given, namely, that he casts his description in the mould of nature, ever-varying, never-tiresome, always interesting, and always instructive, instead of casting them constantly in the mould of his own individual impressions. He gives us man as he is, or as he was, in almost every variety of situation, action, and feeling. Lord Byron makes man after his own image, woman after his own heart. The one is a capricious tyrant, the other a yielding slave. He gives us the misanthrope and the voluptuary by turns. And with these two characters, burning or melting in their own fires, he makes out everlasting centos of himself. He hangs the cloud, the film of his existence, over all outward things sits in the centre of his thoughts and enjoys dark night bright day the glitter and the gloom in cell monastic we see the mournful pall the crucifix the death's heads the faded chaplet of flowers the gleaming tapers the agonized brow of genius the wasted form of beauty but we are still imprisoned in a dungeon a curtain intercepts our view we do not breathe freely the air of nature or of our own thoughts the other admired author draws aside the curtain and the veil of egotism is rent and he shows us the crowd of living men and women the endless groups the landscape background the cloud and the rainbow and enriches our imaginations and relieves one passion by another and expands enlightens reflections and takes away that tightness at the breast which arises from thinking or wishing to think that there is nothing in the world out of man's self in this point of view the author of waverley is one of the greatest teachers of morality that ever lived by emancipating the mind from petty narrow and bigoted prejudices lord byron is the greatest pamper of those prejudices by seeming to think there is nothing else worth encouraging but the seeds or the full luxuriant growth of dogmatism and self-conceit in reading the scotch novels we never think about the author except from a feeling of curiosity respecting our unknown benefactor in reading lord byron's works he himself is never absent from our minds the colouring of lord byron's style however rich and dipped in tyrian dyes is nevertheless opaque is in itself an object of delight and wonder sir walter scott's is perfectly transparent in studying the one you seem to gaze at the figures cut in stained glass which exclude the view beyond and where the pure light of heaven is only a means of setting off the gorgeousness of art in reading the other you look through a noble window at the clear and varied landscape without or to sum up the distinction in one word sir walter scott is the most dramatic writer now living and lord byron is the least so it would be difficult to imagine that the author of waverley is in the smallest degree a pedant as it would be hard to persuade ourselves that the author of child harold and don juan is not a coxcomb though a provoking and sublime one in this decided preference given to sir walter scott over lord byron we distinctly include the prose works of the former for we do not think his poetry alone by any means entitles him to that precedence sir walter in his poetry though pleasing and natural is a comparative trifler it is in his anonymous productions that he has shown himself for what he is 
Intensity is the great and prominent distinction of Lord Byron's writings. He seldom gets beyond force of style, nor has he produced any regular work or masterly whole. He does not prepare any plan beforehand, nor revise and retouch what he has written with polished accuracy. His only object seems to be to stimulate himself and his readers for the moment, to keep both alive, to drive away ennui, to substitute a feverish and irritable state of excitement for listless indolence or even calm enjoyment. For this purpose, he pitches on any subject at random without much thought or delicacy. He is only impatient to begin and takes care to adorn and enrich it as he proceeds with thoughts that breathe and words that burn. He composes, as he himself has said, whether he is in the bath, in his study, or on horseback, he writes as habitually as others talk or think, and whether we have the inspiration of the muse or not, we always find the spirit of the man of genius breathing from his verse. He grapples with his subject and moves, penetrates, and animates it by the electric force of his own feelings. He is often monotonous, extravagant, offensive, but he is never dull or tedious but when he writes prose. Lord Byron does not exhibit a new view of nature or raise insignificant objects into importance by the romantic associations with which he surrounds them but generally at least takes commonplace thoughts and events and endeavors to express them in stronger and statelier language than others his poetry stands like a martello tower by the side of his subject he does not like mr wordsworth lift poetry from the ground or create a sentiment out of nothing he does not describe a daisy or a periwinkle but the cedar or the cypress not poor men's cottages but princesses palaces his child herald contains a lofty and impassioned review of the great events of history of the mighty objects left as wrecks of time but he dwells chiefly on what is familiar to the mind of every schoolboy has brought out few new traits of feeling or thought and has done no more than justice to the reader's preconceptions by the sustained force and brilliancy of his style and imagery lord byron's earlier productions lara the corsair etc were wild and gloomy romances put into rapid and shining verse they discover the madness of poetry together with the inspiration sullen moody capricious fierce inexorable gloating on beauty thirsting for revenge hurrying from the extremes of pleasure to pain but with nothing permanent nothing healthy or natural the gaudy decorations and the morbid sentiments remind one of flowers strewed over the face of death in his child harold as has just been observed he assumes a lofty and philosophic tone and reasons high of providence foreknowledge will and fate he takes the highest points in the history of the world and comments on them from a more commanding eminence he shows us the crumbling monuments of time he invokes the great names the mighty spirit of antiquity the universe is changed into a stately mausoleum in solemn measures he chants a hymn to fame lord byron has strength and elevation enough to fill up the moulds of our classical and time-hallowed recollections and to rekindle the earliest aspirations of the mind after greatness and true glory with a pen of fire the names of tasso of ariosto of dante of cincinnatus 
of caesar of scipio lose nothing of their pomp or their lustre in his hands and when he begins and continues a strain of panegyric on other subjects we indeed sit down with him to a banquet of rich praise brooding over imperishable glories till contemplation has her fill lord byron seems to cast himself indignantly from this bank and shoal of time or the frail tottering bark that bears up modern reputation into the huge sea of ancient renown and to revel there with untired outspread plume even this in him is spleen his contempt for his contemporaries makes him turn back to the lustrous past or project himself forward to the dim future lord byron's tragedies faliero note don juan was my moscow and faliero my leipzig and my mont saint jean seems cain don juan canto eleven end of note sardanapolis etc are not equal to his other works they want the essence of the drama they abound in speeches and descriptions such as he himself might make either to himself or others lolling on his couch of a morning but do not carry the reader out of the poet's mind to the scenes and events recorded they have neither action character nor interest but are a sort of gossamer tragedies spun out and glittering and spreading a flimsy veil over the face of nature yet he spins them on of all that he has done in this way the heaven and earth the same subject as mr moore's love of the angels is the best we prefer it even to manfred manfred is merely himself with a fancy drapery on but in the dramatic fragment published in the liberal the space between heaven and earth the stage on which his characters have to pass to and fro seems to fill his lordship's imagination and the deluge which he has so finely described may be said to have drowned all his own idle humours we must say we think little of our author's turn for satire his english bards and scotch reviewers is dogmatical and insolent but without refinement or point he calls people names and tries to transfix a character with an epithet which does not stick because it has no other foundation than his own petulance and spite or he endeavours to degrade by alluding to some circumstance of external situation he says of mr wordsworth's poetry that it is an aversion that may be but whose fault is it this is the satire of a lord who is accustomed to have all his whims or dislikes taken for gospel and who cannot be at the pains to do more than signify his contempt or displeasure if a great man meets with a rebuff which he does not like he turns on his heel and this passes for a repartee the noble author says of a celebrated barrister and critic that he was born in a garret sixteen stories high the insinuation is not true or if it were it is low the allusion degrades the persona who makes not him to whom it is applied this is also the satire of a person of birth and quality who measures all merit by external rank that is by his own standard so his lordship in a letter to the editor of my grandmother's review addresses him fifty times as my dear roberts nor is there any other wit in the article this is surely a mere assumption of superiority from his lordship's rank and is the sort of quizzing he might use to a person who came to hire himself as a valet to him at longs the waiters might laugh the public will not in like manner in the controversy about pope 
he claps mr bowles on the back with a coarse facetious familiarity as if he were his chaplain whom he had invited to dine with him or was about to present a benefice the reverend divine might submit to the obligation but he has no occasion to subscribe to the jest if it is a jest that mr bowles should be a parson and lord byron appear the world knew this before there was no need to write a pamphlet to prove it the don juan indeed has great power but its power is owing to the force of the serious writing and to the oddity of the contrast between that and the flashy passages with which it is interlarded from the sublime to the ridiculous there is but one step you laugh and are surprised that any one should turn round and travesty himself the drollery is the utter discontinuity of ideals and feelings he makes virtue serve as a foil to vice dandyism is for want of any other a variety of genius a classical intoxication is followed by a splashing of soda-water by frothy effusions of ordinary bile after the lightning and the hurricane we are introduced to the interior of the cabin and the contents of the wash-hand basins the solemn hero of tragedy plays scrub in the farce this is very tolerable and not to be endured the noble lord is almost the only writer who has prostituted his talents in this way he hallows in order to desecrate takes a pleasure in defacing the images of beauty his hands have wrought and raises our hopes and our belief in goodness to heaven only to dash them to the earth again and break them in pieces the more effectually from the very height they have fallen our enthusiasm for genius or virtue is thus turned into a jest by the very person who has kindled it and who thus fatally quenches the sparks of both it is not that lord byron is sometimes serious and sometimes trifling sometimes profligate and sometimes moral but when he is most serious and most moral he is only preparing to mortify the unsuspecting reader by putting a pitiful hoax upon him this is a most unaccountable anomaly it is as if the eagle were to build its eyrie in a common sewer or the owl were seen soaring in the midday sun such a sight might make one laugh but one would not wish or expect it to occur more than once note this censure applies to the first cantos of don juan much more than to the last it has been called a tristram shandy in rhyme it is rather a poem written about itself End of note. in fact lord byron is the spoiled child of fame as well as fortune he has taken a surfeit of popularity and is not contented to delight unless he can shock the public he would force them to admire in spite of decency and common sense he would have them read what they would read in no one but himself or he would not give a rush for their applause he is to be a chartered libertine from whom insults are favours whose contempt is to be a new incentive to admiration his lordship is hard to please he is equally averse to notice or neglect enraged at censure and scorning praise he tries the patience of the town to the very utmost and when they show signs of weariness or disgust threatens to discard them he says he will write on whether he is read or not he would never write another page if it were not to court popular applause 
or to affect a superiority over it in this respect also lord byron presents a striking contrast to sir walter scott the latter takes what part of the public favour falls to his share without grumbling to be sure he has no reason to complain the former is always quarrelling with the world about his modicum of applause the spolia optima of vanity and ungraciously throwing the offerings of incense heaped on his shrine back in the faces of his admirers again there is no taint in the writings of the author of waverley all is fair and natural and above board he never outrages the public mind he introduces no anomalous character broaches no staggering opinion if he goes back to old prejudices and superstitions as a relief to the modern reader while lord byron floats on swelling paradoxes like proud seas under him if the one differs too much to the spirit of antiquity the other panders to the spirit of the age goes to the very edge of extreme and licentious speculation and breaks his neck over it grossness and levity are the playthings of his pen it is a ludicrous circumstance that he should ever have dedicated his cane to the worthy baronet did the latter ever acknowledge the obligation we are not nice not very nice but we do not particularly approve those subjects that shine chiefly from their rottenness nor do we wish to see the muses dressed out in the flounces of a false or questionable philosophy like portia or nerissa in the garb of doctors of law we like metaphysics as well as lord byron but we do not see them making flowery speeches nor dancing a measure in the fetters of verse we have as good as hinted that his lordship's poetry consists mostly of a tissue of superb commonplaces even his paradoxes are commonplace they are familiar in the schools they are only new and striking in his dramas and stances by being out of place in a word we think that poetry moves best within the circle of nature and received opinion speculative theory and subtle casuistry are forbidden ground to it but lord byron often wanders into this ground wantonly wilfully and unwarrantably the only apology we can conceive for the spirit of some of lord byron's writings is the spirit of some of those opposed to him they would provoke a man to write anything farthest from them is best the extravagance and license of the one seems a proper antidote to the bigotry and narrowness of the other the first vision of judgment was a set-off to the second though none but itself could be its parallel perhaps the chief cause of most of lord byron's errors is that he is that anomaly in letters and in society a noble poet it is a double privilege almost too much for humanity he has all the pride of birth and genius the strength of his imagination leads him to indulge in fantastic opinions the elevation of his rank sets censure at defiance he becomes a pampered egotist he has a seat in the house of lords a niche in the temple of fame everyday mortals opinions things are not good enough for him to touch or think of a mere nobleman is in his estimation but the tenth transmitter of a foolish face a mere man of genius is no better than a worm his muse is also a lady of quality the people are not polite enough for him the court not sufficiently intellectual 
He hates the one and despises the other. By hating and despising others, he does not learn to be satisfied with himself. A fastidious man soon grows querulous and splenetic. If there is nobody but ourselves to come up to our idea of fancied perfection, we easily get tired of our idol. When a man is tired of what he is, by a natural perversity, he sets up for what he is not. If he is a poet, he pretends to be a metaphysician. If he is a patrician in rank and feeling, he would feign to be one of the people. His ruling motive is not the love of the people, but of distinction, not of truth, but of singularity. He patronizes men of letters out of vanity and deserts them from caprice or from the advice of friends. He embarks in an obnoxious publication to provoke censure and leaves it to shift for itself for fear of scandal. We do not like Sir Walter's gratuitous servility. We like Lord Byron's preposterous liberalism little better. He may affect the principles of equality, but he resumes his privilege of peerage upon occasion. His lordship has made great offers of service to the Greeks, money and horses. He is at present in Cephalonia, waiting the event. We had written thus far when news came of the death of Lord Byron, and put an end at once to a strain of somewhat peevish invective which was intended to meet his eye not to insult his memory had we known that we were writing his epitaph we must have done it with a different feeling as it is we think it better and more like himself to let what we had written stand than to take up our leaden shafts and try to melt them into tears of sensibility or mould them into dull praise and an affected show of candour we were not silent during the author's lifetime either for his reproof or encouragement such as we could give and he did not disdain to accept nor can we now turn undertakers men to fix the glittering plate upon his coffin or fall into the procession of popular woe death cancels everything but truth and strips a man of everything but genius and virtue. It is a sort of natural canonization. It makes the meanness of us sacred. It installs the poet in his immortality and lifts him to the skies. Death is the great assayer of the sterling ore of talent. At his touch, the drossy particles fall off, the irritable, the personal, the gross, and mingle with the dust. The finer and more ethereal part mounts with the winged spirit to watch over our latest memory and protect our bones from insult. We consign the least worthy qualities to oblivion and cherish the nobler and imperishable nature with double pride and fondness. Nothing could show the real superiority of genius in a more striking point of view than the idle contests and the public indifference about the place of lord byron's interment whether in westminster abbey or his own family vault a king must have a coronation a nobleman a funeral procession the man is nothing without the pageant the poet's cemetery is the human mind in which he sows the seed of never-ending human thought his monument is to be found in his works nothing can cover his high fame but heaven no pyramid set off his memory but the eternal substance of his greatness lord byron is dead he also died a martyr to his zeal in the cause of freedom for the last best hopes of man let that be his excuse and his epitaph End of chapter seven